Welcome to the Africa Practice Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. With us today, we've got Reva Levinson, the President and CEO of KRL International, who's joining us from Accra, as well as Tom Sheehy, Senior Advisor at KRL International as well. Tom previously served as the Senior Advisor on the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs. He has lots of experience with U.S. foreign policy. Reva has famously written an award-winning memoir called Choosing the Hero, My Improbable Journey and Rise of Africa's First Woman President, uh, chronicling the development of her career alongside her relationship with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. And I guess we'll start with Reva. In the book, you describe yourself as a consultant managing projects of consequence in Africa. Would you still describe yourself in these words? And and how are you keeping busy? Eugene, I would. I'd still describe myself in those words. I've been working in Africa now for 33 years and continue to help the continent uh, support its uh, transition. It's been uh, 30 years from dictatorship to democracy. We have COVID now and hopefully moving towards integrated sustainable development. Great. That sounds fantastic. Tom, uh, from your perspective, you know, having moved from Capitol Hill across the street. How do you see foreign policy in Africa, particularly U.S. foreign policy, developing? How do you see its development as having evolved over the course of your career? And are you excited for the future? Um, I am excited for the future of U.S. relations with Africa, Eugene. As you know, U.S. policy towards Africa has largely been bipartisan, and there's been a fairly strong consensus on the desire to promote uh, democracy and human rights, promote civil society as well as economic development through greater trade and investment. And so that's really been a a commitment by the U.S., again, a bipartisan commitment going back 25, 30 years. I think there'll be a great deal of continuity with the Biden administration. There'll be some different areas of emphasis, I think, which we can discuss later on. But on whole, there will be a a large measure of continuity. And I think it's very encouraging some of the the people I think will be serving in the Biden administration in various Africa policies, I think they will be committed to uh, moving ahead with that consensus. Great, thanks. Reva, Tom mentioned that the U.S. has a historical commitment to human rights and democracy on the continent. And over the last few months, we've seen the NSARS protests in Nigeria, which saw the unfortunate use of deadly police violence. We've seen election violence in Tanzania and Cote d'Ivoire. We've seen recently violence in related to elections in, in Uganda as well. You've previously called this generation the activist generation. What do you think distinguishes it from previous politicized African generations? And, and in a similar question to Tom, does that give you hope? Eugene, it does give me hope. And I've written about activist generation. I think it's one of my favorite themes. I talk about the young people who are empowered by education and technology and connected to like-minded people around the world. And they see what's happening in other countries. They see the opportunities that are available to them. And then back at their home country, they're trying to make the institutions represent them. That's the challenge. And why I'm optimistic about it is you talked, uh, you know, before we talked about the apartheid era, we talked about the colonial era and the fight and the struggle during that period. And that was a struggle to overcome racial inequality. That was a struggle to take down the systems. We're now in a democratic system 
or we hope to be in a democratic system in Africa. Now the challenge is to make that democracy count for its young voters and for its young people. And like uh, Tom said, I believe it's a matter of time. I believe that history is on their side. I believe the movement that's happening in these countries, whether it's Nigeria, Uganda, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea, Sudan, is uh, a movement that will hopefully push out the generation of leaders that are there that are holding tight to power that have not allowed the institutions to be stronger than their individual power needs. And my follow-up question from that is directed at, at both of you is how best do you think the United States can be involved in those conversations and furthering those conversations? With those previous generations, the effort from the U.S. tended to be led by government. Many ambassadors around the continent previously taken a, a very prominent role in many countries, helping to foster and, and further democracy and democratic movements. Is that changing with the increasing role of the private sector on the continent, with the role that many U.S.-based foundations and NGOs play? How best should the U.S. government or the United States get involved with this evolving conversation on the continent? Well, Eugene, we have seen over the last several years increasing people-to-people contact amongst Americans and Africans, and I think that's very encouraging. And as you said, foundations and getting the private sector involved to help empower civil society in in Africa. And as Reva said, that's all very positive and we have a new generation committed to change. I do think though that we have to be a little more aggressive on traditional diplomacy. And and let's be frank, we have seen some very troubling backsliding in democracy in Africa, whether it be in Tanzania or Mozambique or throughout West Africa. We've seen rigged elections, we've seen human rights abuses, and we've seen political repression. And so I think the U.S. and and other Western countries really need to to step up, be a little more forward-leaning in terms of calling out bad elections, putting pressure on those actors who, who corrupt elections and abuse human rights. And if we can do that at the official level and then continue support of civil society, I think that's a good combination. But it's going to be a struggle. Nothing's easy. And there are uh, deeply invested forces or forces who are invested in maintaining the status quo, and that's not a democratic status quo. So we need a multi-tiered strategy. I would agree with everything that Tom said. I think that the U.S. continues to be the voice calling for democratic institutions and democratic values. We know we've had a rough four years. We know that our democracy has been tested in the United States but it's gonna be built that stronger. I believe that in this competitive election in the US where Trump and Biden fought it out state by state in the battlegrounds will prove to be something that makes our country stronger. And in that, one of my hopes, and I know Tom's hopes, is that type of signal to the world will be signaled in Africa as well, because we don't wanna see young people die in the streets. We want to see the institutions get stronger and the governments that hold them tight to recognize that they have to let go. They have to let go because their people need them to. They have to let go because if not, they'll be outcasted, as Tom said. There'll be efforts to isolate. There'll be less foreign assistance. There won't be a club that they can participate in. And so we're at a point right now in history on the continent. And if you look at 
Mo Ibrahim's index that just came out last week for the first time since the index was uh, instituted, it shows a backsliding in democracy and a backsliding in governance. And is that because we're not holding the governments accountable to what their commitments are as an international community? Is it because of COVID and the ability to just hold on tighter to the controls of state and media? I don't know, but something that there's going to have to be a collective response to. And people-to-people diplomacy is great. And you build a Democrat one person at a time, but it's about leadership. We all know that it's about leadership in the international community and leadership on the continent. Great. And speaking of the U.S. government, Tom, you mentioned that you expect the Biden administration to have some positive impact on the continent in regards to U.S.-Africa policy in the coming four years of this incoming administration. What do you think he and his potential team have to address and how can he he start from the front foot, you know, in terms of, of naming a foreign policy team and an Africa team and, and addressing some of these issues that you mentioned around taking a much more progressive foot forward on issues of democracy around the continent? Well, certainly, uh, Eugene, there'll be, I think, a a bit of a greater push on democracy, but there's a whole wide agenda, I think. And we'll see the new administration engaged, I imagine, in COVID relief efforts and certainly the debt relief effort. I see probably a a more forward-leaning approach to assisting working with African governments on forgiving and delaying some of the debt payments, but that's going to require African governments committing to be transparent and responsible in, in their spending activities. A couple of quick things, I think, from the Biden administration. There's been a lot of talk by the Trump administration about disengaging militarily, uh, particularly in the Sahel and and West Africa. I think that trend will pause and we'll see a continuation of uh, security commitment in West Africa. We'll see a much more higher level diplomacy. We'll see African leaders uh, within the context of the COVID crisis and, and what's possible, but we'll see more uh, African leaders meeting with President Biden and Vice President Harris, and, and that'll be important. And finally, I would say, I think we'll see the State Department playing more of a uh, lead role. As you may know, in our country, there's often rivalries between the State Department and the National Security Agency and the Pentagon and Treasury and all the various agencies that play a role in our foreign policy. And I think we're going to see a strong Africa team in the State Department, and there's a real sense of re-energizing, revitalizing U.S. diplomacy, and I think Africa will be a beneficiary of that. You mentioned the State Department and putting a strong Africa team in place, but, but you also mentioned previously that Africa policy tends to be somewhat bipartisan. And over the course of the Obama and um, Trump administrations, we saw more of an emphasis on commercial relations around things like Power Africa and things like pursuing trade deals with African countries. Is that something that you expect the emphasis to continue to be on? I do, Eugene. I do see a continuation of U.S. engagement trying to promote trade and investment. One of the biggest initiatives over the last few years in U.S. policy has been the creation of the Development Finance Corporation and the increase in the assets that a department agency has to support U.S. business in Africa. I see strong bipartisan support for that agency and a continuation of its engagement. And, and really, it's just getting started. It's only about a year old. And I think that will grow and be 
much more influential on the African continent. I see a continuation of support for AGOA, uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, at least for the next several years, and uh, a general sense that we want to assist U.S. corporations have partnerships in Africa that work both for the U.S. corporation, but also work for African private sector and promote African development. And so, yes, there is strong bipartisan support for various initiatives to promote U.S. trade and investment with African countries. Riva, one of the big instigators of this change or shift in approaches has been the presence of China on the continent and the fact that it takes a distinctly different approach to the U.S. in terms of it's famously hands-off when it comes to a country's internal politics. And it's been particularly aggressive in pursuing commercial deals with governments as well as supporting Chinese corporations on the continent. Do you see any difference in approach or any new aspects in approach of a potential Biden administration to countering China on the continent? I do see a uh, distinction in approach. I think China will remain a competitor and more than a competitor on the continent in the economic space, in the debt space, in the infrastructure space. During the Trump administration, it was a bit of a zero-sum game. China loses, America wins, and vice versa. The establishment, as Tom talked about, of the Development Finance Corporation was really motivated at a political level at the Trump White House to, to balance out China. You know, whatever the motivation, the Development Finance Corporation now is one of the essential tools for us in terms of private sector engagement on the continent. It has a cap now of $60 billion versus the 30 that the Overseas Private Investment Corporation had. So I think that's the economic competition part will be there. But the difference, I think, with the new administration coming in is I think this administration is going to try to lead with its values and be more aggressive, as Tom talked about, on the democracy, on the government. During the campaign, Biden, as a presidential candidate, actually made a comment on NSARS and on Nigeria and talked about the need for peaceful protests, for the ability to have democracy in the country and to end the violence. That I thought was a bit precedent, putting an African issue in the middle of a presidential campaign in the last weeks of the campaign. You have the new Secretary of State designate, that's uh, Anthony Blinken, who has a very active Twitter page and has been very aggressive in commenting about his concerns about Ethiopia, the challenges with the Tigray region, and the unwillingness of both sides to compromise and to seek peace. And so as we talk about China, the economic competitiveness will be there, but I think that there's going to be a greater push on these nations for the democratic values, the participation in democracy, and listening to what I call this activist generation, because I think we all appreciate that if this generation of people, they're going to be 70% of the continent by 2050, they'll, uh, they'll take up an even greater space in the world that they have to have productive opportunities. There has to be good governance. There has to be the ability to have jobs. It's not just combating China, but combating what China represents in terms of enabling state certain state behavior and not permitting the type of economic growth and democratic participation that I think the U.S. believes is necessary for Africa to succeed. 
If I could just add, Eugene, I agree with Riva. And listen, there, there is some very positive things about Chinese investment in Africa. There are some concerning uh, issues as well. And these are concerns expressed by Africans themselves. You know the issues. They go to the issue of the sustainability of the debt. Can we really afford this bridge or this road? They go to issues of African labor participation, environmental consequences. And so I think the U.S. policy, rather than being the zero-sum game that Reba spoke to, listen, Africa desperately needs foreign investment. China's coming in. Let's work. And, and this, again, gets back to civil society. Let's work with African civil society so they can input their views about Chinese investment. They can play a role of, of looking at particular investments and saying, listen, does this actually work for our development or is this work for for the Chinese and political cronies in the government? And so I think we can do a lot working with both civil society, but also, frankly, working with African governments themselves, providing them with some of the technical expertise to make a, a fair-minded, realistic assessment of African investment and decide, is this good for Africa or is it not? And, and if it's not, then maybe try to get better terms for that investment. But do what you can do to, to empower Africans to assess and best look at Chinese investment. It's interesting you've both mentioned investment and the differences that the U.S. can offer in comparison to China. And I'm very interested to hear from both of you is in terms of the investment or, or business relationship between Africa and the U.S. Over the last 20 to 30 years, that's been in large part driven by AGOA. And AGOA has been linked very formally to human rights and, and development. But at the last renewal of, of AGOA, there was sort of some recognition that the relationship will have to evolve at some point beyond what was put together in the 90s under AGOA. And also that evolution of that relationship could offer something different than what China offers the continent. And many saw this evolution being embodied in the US-Kenya free trade agreement that's currently under negotiation. So I guess I, I want to ask a sort of a double-barreled question to both of you. What's the future of AGOA and that sort of approach, that development, trade, human rights and democracy-linked approach that AGOA took towards the continent? And is that evolving into more formalized trade agreements? And is there a future for specifically the U.S.-Kenya trade agreement? Or will the Biden administration seek something more multilateral like, for instance, a an agreement with the continental free trade area, which is just getting underway. Well, Eugene, much remains to be seen. There wasn't a lot said during the campaign about the Biden trade policy towards Africa. But I do think on a go, it's important. Yes, you're right. It's linked to certain human rights and other conditionality, which are important and which still enjoy support. AGOA is a preferential trade agreement. We don't ask much of African nations in granting these trade benefits other than abiding by some basic standard. It's not a 100-page trade agreement dealing with every element of trade and commerce, which is what the Trump administration wanted to evolve to. And as you mentioned, that, that was the Kenya trade agreement. I think it's important that we have a balance, that we, we don't discard the preferential trade agreement. Listen, many African countries are going to be in very difficult COVID situations for, for years to come with debt, with economic damage. I just don't know that it's realistic to ask them to enter into a modern, comprehensive type trade agreement that's going to force open some of their economic sectors, make demands of them. 
that may not simply be realistic at this point. And, and so a Go has proved a useful tool. Let's continue it. The idea that it would be nice uh, ultimately to evolve into a formal bilateral two-way trade agreement, but it's done a lot of good and, and we don't want to throw that out prematurely. Riva, your thoughts? Um, Eugene, I don't have that much to add to what Tom says. And as he said, the, the Biden presidential campaign, the only policy that they spoke about was a policy towards the Africa diaspora. And that policy was very broad. It talked about democracy, human rights, mobilizing the diaspora as an investor towards Africa, but did not talk about trade. I think the consensus in the community that advocates for Africa is exactly what Tom said, that AGOA should not be thrown out. It needs to be enhanced and it needs to continue to provide those preferences to African nations. We have 54, 55 African nations with very different levels of development. But at the same time, the concept of a free trade agreement, that there's enough maturity continent with the anchor economies, be they Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Senegal, others that have the ability to have a broader partnership with the United States in trade that is, that is puts demands on both sides, that that's something that the future should hold for those economies that are able to achieve that level of interest and investment in terms of trade with the U.S. And so I believe there'll probably be some type of consultation both with the Africans and the U.S. business community about what is that path and what do we plan for. And again, as Tom said, there was this sense during the Trump administration that after four years from now, AGOA is going to be gone. I I, I think that's probably going to be pulled back and it'll be maintained. But what is the incentive structure for African nations to move from AGOA to another form of trading relationship. And like you say, how does it impact or how does the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement impact what would be designed? So I think these are exciting questions, right? I think there's optimism for that. The future of the continent is in its integration. And it's also in these young people who have such capacity to deliver, but both of them are going to have to be enabled by rule of law-based decisions, whether it's individual institutions or however the um, Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement moves, it's only going to be successful if it's rule of law based. There's consistency across the continent in the behavior of the various uh, programs that are put in place. If I could just add, I absolutely agree with Reva, uh, the rule of law. And uh, unfortunately, one of the biggest deterrents to greater U.S. trade and investment with Africa are instances of corruption. Too many U.S. companies run into problems where their investments aren't properly protected, and that just becomes a very problematic, and it sends a, a very bad message to other U.S. companies who might have an interest in making substantial uh, investments in Africa. And I would note that uh, one of the conditions for the Africa Trade Bill is some respect for the rule of law. And so many African governments' economies have it within their own power to improve their own economies through greater concern about uh, establishing stronger rule of law and stronger court systems and treat commercial investors in a more uh, fair way. So uh, that's very important and hopefully we'll make some progress on those issues over the next several years. 
You've both described an increasingly complex conversation between uh, the U.S. And, and Africa, where we're starting to see different types of actors beyond government and, and the traditional large companies getting involved. And that stretches from social media to tech investors getting involved in the African tech scene to cultural interchange, where African music and film is impacting on, on film and music in the U.S. I'd like to hear from you two, what do you think are the most dynamic or interesting emerging aspects of or stakeholders within those conversations who will help to drive that conversation and that interchange in the years to come? Uh, Eugene, it's a great final question because it does reflect a, a continent that's coming of age in all different areas and the possibility. But I would go back, I think maybe four, I'll say four. One is I do believe we want to keep an eye on these young people and their ability to change the, the status quo in their country and participate in the democratic process and have leaders that represent them. I think we have to look at that. That's a, it's an essential first step. And that also means looking at the inclusion of women and youth and other political outsiders that are not vested in the type of hierarchical interest that's held the continent back. So I think that's one. The other is technology. And you said it, Eugene, we have technology driving the way people do business, driving the way they're educated, and the ability to leapfrog over development that has occurred elsewhere in the world. And so how that technology is deployed, invested, the type of partnerships, we've seen Twitter go come in, we've seen Google We've seen Netflix, et cetera. I think that will be a big power play. And then, of course, in the culture and the arts and in the music and in the Nollywood, the ability to show the leadership of Africa content creation and, and fashion, too, and have that be a unique export that's delivered around the world. You know, that Africa has the ability to do that in all of these sectors. And so those are the three things that I would look at, but I would love to see Africa known for its export potential, not well beyond the raw materials, but in its innovation, technology, creative arts, and human resources. And then with that, I'd like to see the international community come in and be creative and put the type of infrastructure that's required to be able to have a foundation for the growth. Tom, over to you. You put your finger on it, Eugene. It's increasingly complex. In some ways, that's a, a very positive development. Uh, to Reva's point, that means that Africans are beginning to produce things that, that are desirable, that need need to be part of a trade agreement, and so intellectual property. So I give the Trump administration some credit for seeing that and wanting to strike a bilateral trade agreement with with Kenya, with other countries. But again, it goes back to the balance. Uh, can you have that relationship with a Kenya and still maintain a GOA and provide much needed preferential trade treatment to, to desperately poor countries that are just starting to uh, get up their manufacturing sector and really need that leg up in what's still a very competitive world where they have to compete against the Vietnams and the Bangladeshis and, and the Chinas. And so uh, we've got all these complexities. We've got the free trade agreement. We've got the continental free trade agreement and we've got a GOA. And we just have to try to move ahead in, in a nuanced way that it strikes the right balance that works for the development of the African continent. Because at the end of the day, 
That's what we want to see. That's what the vast majority of American policymakers want to see. And that's what the American people want to see. So stay engaged and, and just try to uh, work through these issues. It, it will be a challenge with a new administration coming in. It's going to take them a little bit to get their trade legs under them. But I'm optimistic, to Reva's point, uh, we can empower and, and have mutually beneficial relationships with, with many African countries. And, and so we look forward to that. Eugene, I'd make one final comment, and I know we're running out of time, when we talked about the new players that are going to be coming in and the possibility that the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations will be Linda Thomas-Greenfield. We should look at that and celebrate that because she got her first senior posting as a U.S. ambassador to Liberia during the Bush administration. She was promoted under Obama to be Assistant Secretary of State, and she also was a head of the um, Director General of the Foreign Service. And now she's going to be, we believe, at a cabinet-level position with her foundational roots on the continent and somebody who understands it from the nuts and bolts. And so we hope that that'll be a asset as we look at all of these complexities, Eugene, that you've spoken about and the type of commitment that this new administration might make to the continent. Thank you both, Riva and Tom, for joining us today. And thank you for your insights, giving us much to think about. And, and I think much as you are to be excited about the potential and possibilities of the US-Africa relationship going forward. And we hope to have you again. Absolutely. 